You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, a very special bonus episode covering the very best movies of 2023, featuring Atom Bombs, Iconic Kaiju, Beefy Sad Boys, Skinny Sad Boys, Mean Italian Boys, Vampires, Alien Avengers, Terrorists, Lisps, Evil Parakeets, Stinky Teachers, and Leo's Teeth, Martin. Yes. Shut up, nerd. I fucked your mom. Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight. Joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, 2023, pretty good year in movies. Absolutely. I actually think it's one of the best we've had in the last decade, Mm -hmm. easily. Um, And the first that's honestly felt like a true, and this is kind of a cop-out, but like a return to form ever since COVID. This is the first year of movies where I felt like... I hate this phrase that's become like almost used ironically, but like movies are back, baby. Well, and and also just the huge theme of, you know, this, the fall now pretty significantly of, of some genre filmmaking, some like comic book filmmaking, you know, this year shit like the flash and quantum mania just fucking face planted. And then films like Barbie and Oppenheimer, these more quote unquote original IPs were the biggest runaways hits it felt like a return to like nineties or like early two thousands kind of what made a blockbuster. Yeah. It, it's a real fall of the Roman empire Hell kind yeah. of moment where we've saw, like you said, quantum mania, um, the DC movies, Aquaman two yep. significantly collapse, but then also like fast X, even though that movie did make a huge dent in the global box office it was kind of roundly rejected as being like, okay, we're done with these movies now. Yep. As much as we even like the Fast and the Furious franchise, um, you know, 9 and 10 are where even we kind of got off that bus a little bit and we're like, all right, I think this, no pun intended, series has run completely out of gas. <laughs> no, agreed. And, and it, it's funny because not that... Fast, the Fast and the Furious movies were ever critical darlings, but even the fan base, like you said, turned on these later films, especially on, especially on Ten. Yeah, you know, and Nine was tolerable. Ten yeah. was the one where they were like, "Did Vin Diesel shoot any scenes with any other actor in them? Because it looks like it's even green screened." Like I remember Liam O'Donnell, our buddy. Uh, who's making the the newest uh, Skyline movie. Which looks awesome. Yeah, Warpath. Good luck to you, my bro. But, like, uh, he even broke down the trailer when it was first released 
almost like frame by frame and was like, I don't think Vin Diesel ever shared a scene with any of these people. It looks all green screen to me. He's like Oliver Reed after he died in Gladiator, where they just like just stenciled him. He looks actually great special effects, but stenciled him into this movie. Yeah, it, only Ridley is the one who can pull that <laughs> off. Like, like he can have a whole an, an actor get wholly canceled during production and be like, ah, we'll, we'll just shoot Christopher Plummer into it. Well, it's crazy because, like, you know, uh, you know, James Wan with Furious Seven, which we watched for the Statham episode, like had to do all this work to, you know, get uh, Paul Walker's brothers to, like, be body doubles and stuff. And I think they learned that. They go, wait, but Vin Diesel's an asshole. He's not dead. What if we didn't have to work with him and we could, like, have him come for a week, shoot on a green screen? Even when he talks to his son in the trailer, it's like, he's not there. Vin shoots all of his scenes on Marvel's volume. They're just (laughs) renting it out to Universal. They're like, oh, no, we got to make rent somehow here, man. So, like... Just put Vin in there and like, yeah, we can we can project whatever actor he's talking to. He'll zoom in all of his scenes. Yep. Well, it's funny, too, that like Momoa was two and two of the biggest flops of the year. I made the mistake of going to see Aquaman 2 last week. I had to see it. Um, you don't have to see it. I did. You know that, right? Well, with my you buddy. You don't have to see it. My buddy, Charlie, and my buddy, we always go to the comic book stuff. And I got a little tipsy at Chili's. And then... <laughs> <laughs> had a few too many Mars. I did. I had an, I have a couple of El Presidentes and a, and a, a Dos Equis, But it's an El Presidente. It's their it's their cheap margarita. The the one comes in the in the the mixer, um, the shaker. But is it more like a Mexican martini? No, it's just it's just you get your own shaker with with the uh, margarita stuff in it, oh, and then you just pour you. it. Yeah, that is a Mexican martini. Oh, I guess yeah. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing the movie like Fast X, it feels like they're making up for a lot of production problems. And like, obviously you know, we might have heard that Aquaman two also had like three reshoots and disastrous test screenings. Um, and it didn't, it, they try to cut around Amber Heard almost entirely, but she's in it still a lot. And you know, who's in it a lot. My boy, Dolph Lundgren, he had an interview. They said, man, we heard you, you know, heard your role's a little smaller. goes, yeah, definitely smaller. He's in like 40 minutes of the movie. He's like driving these like big fucking uh, tentacle things in this underground scene. He doesn't give a fuck as long as the check clears. Hell yeah. And he's he like, lo- I don't know. I wasn't doing the math. I was too busy working on my fourth PhD. And he looks ridiculous. He's got this red like beard and like He-Man armor on. It's pretty crazy. Um, How hard were you during those scenes? It was actually delightful to see him because it was like this. I mean, obviously it's a flop and a bad movie, but like a $250 million movie with Dolph Lundgren up there, like kind of kicking ass. That kind of pulled me through. The thing that's a bummer, though, is that Momoa's the best part of Fast X. Like he's really having a good time. Like when he does all the weird stuff, like in the massacre With the scene, dead bodies. Yeah, with the dead bodies and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then like I didn't see Aquaman because I have self-respect, but... <laughs> It looked like from the trailers, he was at least having fun. You know, like, I like him. He's a very charismatic, uh, bro-y sort of dude who, like, just has a real kind of, I don't know, a gravitas about him that I I really enjoy. So, like, I don't want to see him fail. It's like Paul Rudd in the Ant-Man movies. Like, I love Paul Rudd. Yeah. But fuck Ant-Man. Yeah, we're not you know about I mean? celebrating your downfall, Paul. You no. know, we like you. Well, it's funny because, like, he, you know, 
I think Fast X, while it's a really bad movie, like you said, shows the talent of Momoa to like really he he brings the fun. He's like doing a, he's basically doing the Joker, you know, crazy like murderous psychopath, kind of like Jack Nicholson's Joker, if anything, you know, playing with dead bodies. Isn't he the brother? He's of he's the brother of the villain from Fast Five from Rio de Janeiro. He's that the we, son. The son. That's it. Yeah, so he's the son of the guy for the end, the villain of part five. Um, and as we've talked, you know, off mic and, and on mic just about it basically being wrestling. It's like, did you actually know this film that came out 12 years ago? There was a guy who's also there who drove this car. They retcon everything. They just like force in these new characters, which I, I don't mind. Um, well, I mean, they did it with Statham. Yeah. To go back to our last yeah. episode. Exactly. Is that it literally was like, oh, yeah, Luke Evans. He had a brother. Jason fucking Statham. Oh, and Han and died he, in three. He killed Don him. Also hide in, yeah, <laughs> Han also died in three, but it wasn't just in a wreck. Jason Statham orchestrated his death. And you're like, yeah, I guess. Sure. Vince McMahon, whatever. <laughs> but to take it back to something that's more along the lines of the movies that are appearing on our list is that this was the year that it felt like not necessarily independent, cinema because a lot of these are being put out by like I, I struggle with calling like A24 and Neon independent necessarily because they're still pretty big studios at this point. They're acquiring these movies or even financing them and putting them out into the world with a lot bigger marketing push than you know something like Sex Lies and Videotape had or, yeah. or like a lot of the 90s boom before like Miramax and the Weinstein brothers really took control. But this felt like the year where the little movies came in like adult character driven dramas um, with uh, quite a few of which appear on our lists. Like they, they made a big kind of return. Like they, they captured a lot of audiences kind of attentions, like stuff like the iron claw stuff like, all of us strangers. I mean, hell, Oppenheimer, even though it's a big studio movie from Christopher Nolan, the last arguably name brand director that we have that can command like that kind of audience just by basically saying, hey, I'm making a movie. Yeah. Like Oppenheimer is still for all of the massive explosions and, and practical special effects that are put into you know, bringing the the atomic bomb and uh, the Manhattan Project and all that stuff to life, like it's still a three hour movie about nerds talking in rooms about science. It's a straight drama. Yeah, yeah. It becomes downright uh, like a a Sorkin like courtroom procedural in the last hour. Well, and you know. A lot of times we've talked about this, my other friends have talked about this, of like kind of the death of the middle class of filmmaking, right? We either have indie indie, like small stuff, or we have $300 million films, especially when those $300 million films were doing very well. You know, and again, another another film that failed this year, Dial of Destiny, another IP of Indiana Jones, you know, um, and... Now it's that middle class kind of coming back. The, the joke about those days of dad movies like Ron Howard type stuff. But a lot of these on paper are more dad movies, you know, uh, that kind of middle class of like just kind of character dramas, dude movies. You know, Ferrari, I think, is definitely that. Um, Can we get our backdraft again? I would love that. 
you know, like that's my favorite Ron Howard movie. But yeah, that that, that seemed fair. Like that kind of like return at least a little bit. But from studios like A twenty four and Neon, we're moving in that direction. Yeah, I think, and I think stuff like the Iron Claw for example, is a great example of like where those types of movies are headed to where the art house is becoming more digestible and more accessible to the mainstream beyond like people who like when A24 started, you know, were digesting stuff like The Witch. Like it's not just Robert Eggers movies or like Green Room, yeah. which was at the time, you know, the most, one of the more like accessible kind of titles that a24 was putting out yeah but still like nobody cared about jeremy saulnier or like a movie about punks you know in, in a siege with like neo-nazis like that was still geared towards the fantastic fest crowd and like nerds like us now a24 is like releasing big stuff like civil war even though it's made by alex garland it still stars kirsten dunst and jesse plemons and looks like a big budget, like their version of like a big budget spectacle movie. Well, and they, the word I've been hearing too is like they're, that's the new direction of A24. They're like, we're tired of kind of nickel and diming it. We're going to start doing bigger, almost they're pushing towards the mainstream. Yeah, mainstream, even not, not maybe IP, but like bigger stuff. Like I think Civil War is their first step into that. Accessible. Accessible, yeah. Like borderline blockbusters. It's also why Neon, you know, which has become. The Palme d'Or acquiring, you know, with stuff like they had Anatomy of a Fall this year, which was great. And they had Teton, which was one of my favorite movies the last 10 years. You know, they've just been gobbling up these movies that win the Palme d'Or. And Anatomy of the Fall is the first one I feel like they've actually successfully broken beyond Parasite, you know, because like... Parasite was kind of the first one where they were like, that's it. This is the model. But not every movie is going to cross over that way. Yeah. Like a Bong Joon-ho movie is going to. Like, certainly not Teton. You know? Because I love that movie because it feels like transgressive outsider art that's really, like, confrontational and sexual and, like, challenges your boundaries as, like, a human being. Like, you know... Anatomy of a Fall, for all of its, it, which unfortunately didn't make our list and is a very, very good movie, you know, for all of its vagaries and kind of questions left unanswered by the end, it's still a courtroom drama. And it's a courtroom drama about a woman who may or may not have killed her husband. That on paper is like a Law & Order episode. It's just a near three hour law and order episode that shows you that the French court system is fucking weird. Well, it, it's, I'm thinking too about, um, a couple of the films on our lists and we'll get in a second here to the specifics, but like we have iron claw and we have Ferrari, right? Two films that for lack of a better word are they're you know, true to life biopics. They could be right now. The biopic Ever since, in my opinion, um, a lot of people's opinion, uh, since Walk Hard has kind of been torpedoed, right? It's hard to do the same beats. You'd think so, but I mean, One Love, that Bob Marley well, movie, which looks like a fake movie, is yeah. actually coming out. Or the Amy Winehouse one, or my appearance in Bohemian Rhapsody. Just Jesus, like yeah. these, these manufactured stupid things, but 
both iron, I mean, iron claw, we'll talk about more specifically, like should not work, but it does many scenes that because they're so well written and it's just so the, the direction of Sean Durkin and the performances just completely cross over that, that like sentiment gap that we're like, Oh, it seems a little it's like it gets really real, you know, and very emotional and it's not afraid. And Ferrari the same way that it like it, it, plays into some of the beats of like a, a classic biopic, even saying wrong kid died. I mean, literally, but like man doesn't fucking give a shit about that. And it's such a different type of movie. So it's a return to these, this middle class of filmmaking, but it's also an advancement of that. Does that make sense? It does. And also it depends on these very specific auteurs who are tackling the subject matter because like Ferrari is very much a Michael Mann movie. hundred percent. Right yeah. down to it has one of the quintessential Michael Mann speeches in the middle of it that Enzo Ferrari delivers about racing that like I was on the edge of my seat the entire time because nobody else could have put that in their movie. It's our terrible joy. Mann. It's our terrible joy. Fuck. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's like, but for all of that, and for a guy who's known mostly for like making movies with gunfights and thieves and cops and computer hackers and tapping into a very primal masculine drama, yeah. like They're a crime movie movies. about yeah. race car uh, drivers isn't about race car drivers at all. It's about the guy who makes the cars who doesn't drive anymore. And the most intense scenes aren't the actual race scenes. They're the domestic squabbles that he has with his wife and like how intense they both love and hate each other because those fights between Adam driver and Penelope Cruz are like as heart crushing as anything that like driver did in marriage story with Scarlett Johansson. Oh, I mean the scene where the, the big blowout scene where they fight or she says, you promised our son wouldn't die. And then it's, you know, again, some of these lines shouldn't work with another another. The father deluded himself. Yeah, well, he said, "I thought I could fix him, like a car, basically." And they, they yeah. don't they don't shy away from the on the nose, you know, symbolism. But it really fucking really fucking works. It really does work, yeah. and it's just an incredible piece of acting. But it's also, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves and and just dive right into Ferrari. But it's also a testament to like Adam Driver is the actor of his generation now. Like it's clear yeah this is the guy who just holds the frame and is the one of the most hypnotic performers that we have and he time and time again chooses to work with bona fide masters of cinema he's worked with scorsese he's worked with man he's worked with bombach several times he's worked with leos carax like he's the fucking guy now who's constant like his my favorite performance of his is still, I think, one that we can consider completely underrated, which is Patterson, the Jim yeah. Jarmusch movie where he's the poetry uh, writing bus driver. That movie is so delicate and beautiful, and he finds a real, like, lyricism in just everyday life and, like, really lives and breathes what Jarmusch is trying to bring out. And, like, he's so incredible in it, but it's like... That's what he can do. He can do that, and he can do bombastic Michael Mann monologues, and also he does, like, the stoic, statuesque, 
you know, the way that man like places man in a gray in the, suit in, in the frame <laughs> yeah. to like represent a, a primal human and very masculine again emotion. Like he can do all of that. So it's like we're watching. I think this is a very special time in movies because we're seeing the downfall of, you know, essentially the, 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 Cape industrial complex that has yeah. destroyed multiplexes and now in their the wake of these pieces of shit that we were subjected to for so many years, we're seeing bona fide cinema. Like it's it does I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it does somewhat mirror the birth of the new Hollywood in the late sixties and early seventies to where the spectacle films fell apart stuff like that basically carried movie theaters through like the fifties and sixties, like Ben Hur, Cleopatra, Cleopatra, all those gigantic epics. Those are going the way of the Dodo now. And in their place are these very artistic writerly, actorly, autorist works of art that, are going to essentially like recapture audiences imaginations. And I think we're in, I think this past year was the first year that kind of ushers us into a new era of something very special. No, I, I agree. And I think you and I've been talking about this for a while. I said, you know, when that bubble pops, you know, it's going to be the new Hollywood again, and it's going to be different. I mean, it's not exactly the same setup, but because we have companies like a 24, we have companies, like you said, like neon, um, even like Amazon putting out some interesting stuff, you know, like some of the streaming services. The problem is, and I'll use this to transition into the first work that's on my list. The, the problem is the apparatus to deliver these works of art isn't in as stable a form as what it was in the late 60s and early 70s with drive-ins and movie theaters and you weren't quite in multiplexes yet. Like a lot of them were just like two and three screen, you know, either drive-ins or, or small like local theaters and stuff. Unfortunately, mo like not most, but a huge chunk of movie theaters have died. Yeah, And COVID, and COVID saw to that. COVID yeah. destroyed it. And also it was a perfect storm of like superhero films and really block i don't want to put it just at their feet but they are one of the main culprits but we'll just use a blanket term and say blockbuster film making and distribution in general has set up theaters to essentially fail because even places like draft house which was known for you know bringing in art house films foreign language films Rep documentaries yeah. the stuff repertory that, stuff repertory stuff like that shit doesn't even exist really in Austin, it's particularly not like how when I first, we've talked about this time and time again, but not like when I first moved here to where like I could go down to the Ritz any day of the week practically and see something on rep or something artsy or, or a foreign language yeah. movie or a documentary or part of a series that was being put on. Now the Ritz is fucking comedy mothership from Joe Rogan. Yeah. Nothing you know could be I more mean? symbolic of... Yeah. Of the fall of Austin, frankly. Yeah, and the fall of art. <laughs> but, like, that type of stuff doesn't exist anymore. But that was because superhero movies and the big companies that were putting them out, like Disney, 
like Amazon, like Netflix, like Netflix. I remember when I worked for Draft House, just being told the insane stories about how Netflix did not negotiate. Like it was, you either get this or you get nothing. You want, you want the Irishman? Cool. You get it for a week. You get it at these time slots and this many theaters that we say, or you don't get it at all. But Disney would do the same thing of being like, we want this movie on this many screens. Or like, maybe we don't give it to all your movie theaters. Like they played hardball because they knew they had the product yeah. that drove the business, you know? So what happened then is that that set that pushed all of these other movies out of the theaters and then COVID came in and was the death blow because we lost movies too. We lost the product to fill those screens. We lost the audiences to go along with it. Theaters died. And now the super mover hero movies don't really exist and they're not driving the business like they used to. So like these art house movies are coming in or like these smaller movies are coming in. They don't drive the same audience and also they don't have as many screens to appear on anymore. So like, yeah, we're seeing the birth of the new Hollywood, but part of the challenge is going to be delivering those works and finding new ways to deliver those works to uh, new audience members. Because, I mean, did you see the story about how Harmony Corinne is releasing Agro Drift, his weird oh, like infrared video game movie thing, yeah. with Travis Scott about uh, he's going to release it in strip clubs? Like, it's such a performative, uh, bullshitty yeah. thing. I mean, this is a guy who called his company Edgelord. But, I mean, like, that's the extreme version of this. But stuff like that is going to be how these movies find new audience members is through innovative, either kind of like installations or uh, distribution techniques and, like, just find maybe even, like, doing hybrids of streaming and theatrical. And it's just... We're going to watch the business evolve in real time. We're going to also watch it fail. Now, which brings me to my number five on the list, which is kind of a cheat because I guess it's technically not really a movie. It's a series for Netflix that came out in the first week of the year, pretty yeah. much, which is Nicholas Winding Refn's Copenhagen Cowboy. Another one of his insane Autorus transmissions that he somehow tricked a streaming service, this time instead of Amazon like he did for Too Old to Die Young. Um, he tricked Netflix into funding whatever Copenhagen Cowboy actually is. It starts as almost like a supernatural vampire kind of Euro horror gothic fairy tale that evolves into underworld gang wars drug deals and all revolves around a possibly alien avenger named mew who dances through the these dens of bad people and does away with them and in typical jacob knight fashion all I wanted was a dopamine drip of this shit to be hooked up to my arm. And I just wanted to zone out for six straight hours and just let Nick Reffin transport me to a world of just fetish and fantasy. Because, man, he just he makes movies that I just 
completely operate on their wavelength. And you know, I usually I don't always. You know, we we, did yeah. all, we obviously we did four episodes on his films and on uh, Too Old to Die Young. I enjoyed this significantly more than I enjoyed uh, Too Old to Die Young. Did you? Yeah. I just I didn't realize that you liked it more. I did, and I and I, I really grew to like Too Old to Die Young by the end. And obviously, there's the one episode that I think is the best right out in the desert. You know, um, the New Mexico episode, right? Oh, and the stuff with James Urbaniak. Yeah, it's and just the, the rape porn producers and almost like a mini movie within. You know, within the tell me about your asshole. Oh God. James. Um, but I thought. Copenhagen Cowboy, because it was, like you said, the Euro horror side. I mean, everything out at that, like, chalet of, like, walking by the water and in these, like, kind of Mario Bava type style to some of it. Oh, totally. You know, and, like, and there's the super, you know, obviously, Refn loves garish colors and, like. It's Mario Bava, Jean Roland. Yeah. Um, even a little bit of Thomas Harris and. No. Uh, Hannibal. Yeah, totally. Thrown in. Brian, the family is Brian very fuller. Yeah. Like, I mean, when she kicks the shit out of like the, what do we even refer to it? It's, um, like Aryan vampire prince. Who's like using blood to resurrect his dead mother. And when he gets into that fight with Mew and she basically tears him to pieces, he comes back almost like Mason Verger. He, like he's that world's version of it because he like re he wears that mask and re pieces his face and stuff and it's just like it's Reffin playing with like pastiche as he usually does but doing it in a way that only he can do it because like once we get into the actual gang war segment of it man that split screen montage of the gang war oh. Between the Asians and like the 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 Danish like underworld is so fucking cool because it's like it takes almost like 30s and 40s style noir like all the close ups and silhouettes of like machine guns firing and it's all set to that fucking awesome like industrial kind of like nine inch nails like beating Peter Gunn like kind of. Uh, oh, uh, it's that that motorcycle motorbike. Yeah. That, I have that on my so fucking phone. Fucking good, I listen man. to it all the time, and it just it's just thumping and it goes. But like, it looks like something that you would see in like an old Samuel Fuller, or like something out of those old Columbia Noir like box sets, because it's like you're half expecting like headlines to fly at you and be like gang war in Copenhagen, you know, the way that those old movies used to only this is like his version of it. Like he loves cinema so much and he wants to remix it into his own, his own drug. And it's just, I find all of his stuff so intoxicating at this point, because like Copenhagen cowboy, we thought, and we talked about when we did our mini series on too old to die young, we thought too old to die young, and it still probably is just because of length allows it uh, this kind of luxury, we'll say. But it, it, Copenhagen Cowboy might actually be the ultimate ref and sampler platter because the Euro horror stuff feels like a mix of of uh, Neon Demon a little Neon bit. Neon Demon and Only God Forgives yep. is in there. But then when you get to... Uh, the actual like crime stuff. It's the most narratively propulsive thing he's done since drive. 
And it brings really? in Pusher. Well, and that's know. apparently how he originally tricked Netflix into making the series is that it was post Squid Game and Netflix was obviously doing great numbers with international stuff and foreign language stuff. And yep. they wanted a new kind of foreign language title that they thought would tap into this audience. And they, they get Nick Reffin in and they basically were like, we want something more like your early movies, like the pusher movies and, and those crime films that you were making on a lower budget with, you know, guys like Mads Mikkelsen back when he was super young and that kind of got in, got you started. And he was like, of course, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. And then he did not. He did not give you that. Like, he gave you a little bit of that, but then he gave you a lot of everything else. And, like, again, he still sticks to kind of like Yuritsa in Too Old to Die Young. Mew is just another one of his manic pixie destroyers who just goes through and is there to punish all the bad men in the world, including Refn himself, who's doing, like, this coked-out real estate developer thing and even shows up in, in these scenes like as this weird silent like money guy who's just waiting for like an underage prostitute to arrive and like he very much knows the way that we view him like he's very self-aware and he knows what kind of like sleaze that he's peddling in it's like ferrara in a way yeah, yeah very yeah. very much it's but unlike ferrara i don't think there's any self-indictment <laughs> You know, yeah. like it's very much like, eh, I'm an asshole, right? It's kind of, it's more court jestery where like Ferrara is doing legit Catholic like introspection and almost like confession and penance with his own work where he's like, I know I'm a bad person. I know all human beings are horrible and this is how I am essentially trying to cleanse myself is through my art. Refn is just there to poke you in the ribs and be like, this is fun, right? Like, this is fucking weird, right? And you're like. If you're on, if you're on its wavelength, it's great. If you're not, this is a slog for six hours. Yeah, and I, and, I, and also it's got my dude Hideo Kojima in it, his best friend. Yep. you know, video game uh, director of who also showed up in Too Old to Die Young. Yep, yep, and and very very cool because like they're I follow them both on social media and they just basically hang out in Japan and like go do crazy shit together and eat. It's always good to see him. But no, I, I like, we've said numerous times to other directors, but you're like, why do you like Cameron so much? I'm like, well, Cameron likes what I like. And it's like Refn for you is like Refn likes what you like. Like visually, the films you like, the styles you like, the music you like. Well, one of his most underrated, one of his most underrated, underrated achievements at this point is that he's one of the great grindhouse film preservationists too, is that he's mm -hmm. helping put out these very, very obscure stuff. Like the Michael Finley movies and... and you know, he's even, you know, helped bring back those Andy Milligan biographers and stuff. And it's like he he really loves this stuff and he wants to bring you the newest version of it. But it's always just going to be his version of it. So yeah, that's my number five, Copenhagen Cowboy. What's yours? Number five for me is a very different kind of film, which is The Holdovers. Um, I came to this... Very wholesome. Very wholesome. Um, I came to this super, super late. I didn't see it till like two weeks ago. Um, but I finally... Because I was honestly like... I'm not a huge Alexander Payne fan usually. Uh, Payne fan. And so... But... I liked, I, I love a setup of like, you know, a good like boys boarding school, you know, and what a just delightful 
little movie. I mean, talk about another one to films that really aren't made anymore, you know? And Well, and he's very much aping a style of movie that's not made anymore. Like, he's to, like, an almost uh, insane level of fidelity. Yeah, and you mentioned, like, Hal Ashby. Yeah, it's very much supposed to be a Hal Ashby movie. Like, The Last Detail or... Which is amazing. Harold and Maude, yeah. like all those types. Well, it's because I like it because like a lot of when Payne's at his best is like it may be shaped like a kind of it could be a somewhat generic feel good movie. But the details are so researched and specific that it, it, it doesn't allow it to just be a generic claptrap. Right. You know, I think the relationship between them, I think. Sometimes that kind of indie filmmaking, that kind of indie filmmaking randomness of like the scene where the kid breaks his arm. I roll my eyes sometimes with films like that, where it's like, that's an indie filmmaking kind of trick or writing where it's like, oh, what if you just broke his arm? And it like, but I like the way it grows. I think that the, the kid is phenomenal. Yeah, um, Dominic Cessna. Yeah, he's, it's his first role, I think. Ever. Um, and... The I was talking to a friend about it. Like it kind of just in the end, it just it seems like a Christmas movie that might stand the test of time. You know about found family. You know of just and as you and I both know, especially during COVID, how lonely it can be to be alone around the holidays. You know, um, and to have you know no one to spend it with and you, to feel kind of abandoned. And I think that it feels like a COVID film in that respect of these people who kind of find each other while the world is, is gone sure. around them, the isolation of that. And, and Giamatti, I mean, just like he just brings it um, as he always does. But like, it, it's, again, this is a, it was one of those things where is, this might be his year for the Oscar. Um, I think probably Killian has it in the bag. Yeah. Um, it's going to be hard to beat Killian Murphy, but he's getting a lot of the press. Um, there's a lot. And, and Paul Giamatti is also a very good interview, and he's very charming, you yes. know, and his story is, and also just being a somewhat uh, classically not attractive guy, and they definitely do him dirty in Holdovers. They do him he so smells, dirty. He he's just, smelly, he, he's got a, a his, his walleye. walleye, like he's very unlikable and prickly, but this does feel like a return to form, or just a return in general, because I mean... Giamatti just hadn't done a role like this in in some years. And like the last time he really did it together with pain was sideways. And the last film I can remember that really brought this kind of energy was one of my favorites of his, actually my favorite performance of his is win, win the Tom McCarthy movie. Yeah. Which he's quite good. He's, at. he's phenomenal in it. Um, but I mean, again, it's, it's not, it's not the most unique idea of like the grizzled professor who slowly starts to warm, but the way that pain does it and slowly kind of chips away um, at that facade. And also um, who sh she's nominated. Um, Divine Joy Randolph. Yeah. Divine. And I mean, I remember her in Dolomite and like very much her stealing a lot of this, many of the scenes that she's in. Um, as she's so good with Eddie Murphy in that the, movie. The whole, I mean, like the first time they meet when they're at the, they're at the table together or they're at the bar together, and she's like, "I'll have a banana daiquiri," and it's this little scene of him. Are you trying to pick me up? You know, and the the way that she turns and her and that or the scene for me that makes me cry every time is where she thanks him. Yeah, where, it's where, where so she, good. She's like, "You no one ever gave me a chance," and like she is so phenomenal in holdovers of 
just the like the pain she's holding on because the whole thing too I think very not in the most subtle way is the 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 ghost of Vietnam just hanging over this entire film where of like these rich kids don't have to go her son did go you know uh, an African American kid um, because he didn't have other options to go to college and so this like, idea of like two Americas and privilege and but surrounding this really nice little family story, but with the world outside really kind of burning, you know, around them um, without being too explicit about it. The Vietnam stuff is the, the element in it that makes it feel the most like a BBS production from the seventies, yeah. all those Bob Rafelson stuff. Yeah. Like five King easy pieces. Yeah, five easy pieces. King, King of Martin, Marvin gardens, stuff like that. The very character driven small movies that were of, a specific cultural era. Mm-hmm. That's what Payne is really trying to replicate and does quite quite the job with it. Yeah, no, I just, I love it. So my number four, and here's the thing. These numbers, until we get to basically one and two, are pre- and even with one and two, are pretty arbitrary, but this is the fourth movie we'll say that I picked. And it's the one that you finally got to watch today for the first time, is Todd Haynes's May-December. A completely batshit, sort of erotic thriller, sort of dark comedy, complete bombastic melodrama about an actress played by Natalie Portman who comes to study with a middle-aged mother uh, played by Julianne Moore in her reteaming with Todd Haynes for the first time since Far From Heaven. Has it been that long? It's been a while. Wow. And I mean, you also have, like, anytime he works with Julianne Moore, it's fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, Far From Heaven, Safe. I don't know if you ever saw that, uh, where she becomes the agoraphobic who who's terrified of germs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Oh, if you've never seen that movie, Criterion put it out. It's one of the finest non-horror horror movies of the 90s gotcha yeah where you just watch a movie a woman completely fall apart in front of you because all of her fears and anxieties just manifest themselves to the point where like the end i guess you could consider happy but it's also incredibly tragic but like haynes is returning with and reteaming with uh, one of his muses and then it has one of the big breakout performances of 2023 with charles melton who plays Julianne Moore's very young husband. And we more or less find out because the, the actress is coming to study and cause she is going to play Julianne Moore in the moving movie version of her life. Because we find out that this is more or less Todd Haynes's adaptation of the Mary Kay Letourneau story and how she seduced her 13 year old student, or I guess, they worked together at a pet store in this version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She seduced a kid who came and worked with her, um, went to jail for it. They continued their love affair, had a child together, and then proceeded to have a life together after she got out of prison against all of society's wishes and wants and expectations. And this movie escalates in a way because it it almost reveals itself to you like a mystery to where, like, because I went in, Netflix sent me a screener of this. I knew that it played at Cannes to 
mixed but somewhat muted responses. But I had a couple people who saw it at Cannes who were like, when people get a load of this movie, it's going to scramble their brains a little bit. And but I so I told them, I was like, don't tell me anything about it. Don't tell me what it's about. I don't want to know any details. I just want to see it because I always thought that Haynes is one of our great working masters. I mean, all of his movies are just so tremendous. And I knew when he reteamed with Julianne Moore that it was going to be something special. But I didn't know that it was going to be quite like this. And as it just keeps going and keeps going, it's like it builds, it builds, it builds. And it reveals a little bit of perversion and a little bit of mystery and a little bit of like unhinged mania. Like until like it reaches a real fever pitch because the movie becomes less about these two women and more about the guy who was stuck, you know, in this relationship with this woman and became more or less suspended in adolescence for his entire life and how he comes to reckon with that. And Charles Melton's fucking awesome in this. Like he's tremendous. Yeah. I read it. Um, I just, again, saw it for the first time today and I'm really glad I did. I adored this movie. I thought it was fantastic. And again, he was, uh, the standout thing for me because I know Natalie Portman usually have more rule. You know what I mean? Like I did not not surprised by how great they were for him. And Natalie Portman's dialing it up to like fifteen. Oh, and she's movie. she's having a great time. And um, but Charles Melton, I remember I've watched him on Riverdale. You know, so he's the CW guy. And I was reading this this interview and like similar to like Austin Butler, these pretty boys from TV who are now leveling up right and showing their true chops. Also, two guys who are very handsome. Like Jacob Elordi, yeah, the other same one thing. Too. These 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 gorgeous, gorgeous men, you know, who've done kind of kind of rom com teen shit for a while, and now are you know showing what they can really do. And you know, you have the I read an interview with him, um, and he was talking so much about he was so nervous to like do this role because he's like again a huge jump for him in terms of like quality of product that he's working on, but he was he, the physicality was so important to him. And he was saying like, that's why I'm so I'm, he hunches like the whole film, you know, he's constantly like guarding himself. Like he's not, he he's making himself smaller. And I think that he is the, again, he's never fully grown out of being a boy. And like, you have the obvious symbolism of these, you know, these carrot, these carapaxes, carapaxes of, um, these butterflies, he, you know, he's trying to let these butterflies fly free again. in another filmmaker's hands, I don't think it would have worked, but you know, Todd Haynes is not, not ashamed or afraid of somewhat obvious symbolism when it works in this kind of milieu, right. Of this like very cinematic melodramatic setting. I mean, he made his own Douglas Sirk. Oh, I was going to say far from, you know, far from heaven is the definition of that, of like, he completely leans in on it. But I think the scene for me, that like kind of murdered my just heart was when he is on the uh, roof with his son and they get high for the and they get time. high for the first time. And at first it's like, but the, the running thing, and I'm so happy you got to see it kind of blindly because I knew the story. Right. And what's really genius about this film at the beginning, I think especially for people going in blind is like, he looks like her son and there's the other kids around who look his age. His well, that's sh- what I mean by a mystery because yeah. it's like what I didn't know what the movie was about and was watching it on my couch literally at like 1130 at night is when I fired up the screener. I was like the first like 10, 15 minutes I was watching it being like, oh, is she like 
do we have more son? Is she the is he the big brother? And then you watch how they're affectionate and touching each other, and you're like, no, that's either something incestuous is. Oh, that's what this is. Okay, so this is where we're going with this, and then it keeps going and it keeps going, and then you realize that the whole town knows about it and has their own opinions on it and then when you meet her ex-husband and find out that she had a whole other family the way it kind of like slow rolls all of these details about how this relationship kind of rippled out and then it lets Charles Melton kind of take the reins and run with it and become the main character and then there's the scenes between not only with him and his son but all the stuff with him and Natalie Portman and their relationship is devastating. Well, you know, we were talking off mic. I mean, this film and Iron Claw are, are both about familial trauma, right? And like generational trauma told in very different ways. But this, this very, very different, different ways. But the sad. This is a De Palma movie. Yeah. Versus a more like opera, almost Coppola sense for me of Iron Claw, yeah. you know, um, and what I found, like, like you're right. What's so amazing is that flip to it focusing more on on Joe, on the on his character, is you realize that both these women are just fucking liars, right? Like one's an actress, and out of their minds, and out of their minds. One's an actress who is there, who will do. You see her charm people and be who she has to be. Um, and Old Dargis talked about like she has the smile, but it's kind of like dead, right? There's like not a lot behind it. And, well, you know, it's playing in a Portman's porcelain doll kind of person. Yeah, oh, and the thing of him looking at her on the computer and those like Neutrogena ads kind of watch this, this beautiful woman who is somewhat empty in this film. And then you have Julianne Moore, who's, you know, this great manipulator as well, because I, and I mentioned off mic that she reminds me of my grandmother, who was an abusive woman who everyone thought was wonderful, you know, and they, there's these, this book that, um, we talk about a family called the people of the lie. And it's like, there's two ways to kind of live. You either like bind the lie or you like question it. And like, that's his whole arc in this film is, and us as an audience too, is like, wait, 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 at the core of all of this, she fucked a 13 year old boy. And like, you feel like you're going crazy in the first half, right? Cause you're like, how is no one talking about the thing? Well, that's the original the, sin, right? Well, that's the way that Todd Haynes kind of pulls the, the rug out from under you is remember that first conversation that uh, Portman has with one of the neighbors, the, the very kindly old lady at the yep. barbecue um, is that she comes in and the thing that she says to her is just whatever you do, be just kind, be kind. And you're like, it sets it up to, it sets us up as a, the audience to make us think, Oh, the world has done these people dirty and their love is real. And then he slowly pulls the rug out from under you and it's like, mm, but is it? Yeah. And it's, you know, not to bring up a film that's not on this list, um, but like Saltburn is another film that tries to do a similar kind of trajectory of like, cool, it's this kind of staid, high class society. Everything seems a little weird, but fine. And then it's just like, oh, he's slurping cum out of the bottom of a, a tub. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You know? Um, fucking that grave. Yeah. And... And for me, I mean, I think this is a, a hundred times better film than Saltburn and, and also has a lot more depth. Saltburn thinks it's deep. It's not at all. Um, this film has layers upon layers upon layers. I can't wait to watch it again. 
Um, I, I think especially again because of Joe's journey and the scene of him watching the graduation of his kid. Basically, they're doing what he never got to do, and he also in the, his eyes has this fear of are they doomed to the same future I have? Right, like that kind of like. I, I missed out on having a childhood. I missed out on having an adolescence. And now also girlfriends, girlfriends they're leaving the whole, cause the whole thing is about like the empty nester thing, right? Which all couples deal with, but it's like, holy shit, I have to deal with this woman now alone. Cause you can tell he's actually a good dad. Like in this weird way, like it's fucked up, but he's a good, he's at least, he's a good family member or a good like um, partner to them in their lives. Like, because he's younger she seems fucking crazy. The scene where she flips out over the woman canceling her cake order. You, that's another scene where Todd pulls the veil back. Cause you're like, Oh, that's who she is. She's fucking, mm-hmm. she's bananas. Like, you know, she's like Natalie Portman, an old version of Natalie Portman from heat. I can't be late. I need my barrettes. You know, it's that like obsessive, like she's off her fucking rocker. Well, and you also go back and watch the old Mary Kay Letourneau interviews and he's pulling whole quotes from them and, and like the whole exchange where she basically is like, admit it. You were the one that was in control. Admit it. Dude. You were the one. You seduced That's me. That's in an actual interview. Like she does it verbatim and you watch his face be like, I was 13. Like, what are you talking about? Like it's, this is a real, real special work of, of, of something. Well, and, 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 and also just, um, of, of satire in a way like you have i mean the moment for me where i was like i laughed out loud we don't have enough hot dogs well <laughs> no it's there's a lot of laugh out loud scenes but it's when um she's talking to the director and says none of the kids auditioning are sexy enough and i'm like i'm just laughing because i'm like okay this is a fucking comedy because that's fucking absurd and then the guy says i think you need to come home and the scene cuts I think you need <laughs> and, to come home. And the scene just cuts because you're like okay because then you realize too because it also like you're on such uneven on uneven footing in this film because you're like first you're like okay am I siding with this like because you don't ever really get to know Natalie Portman like you never get to know her character that well Lizzie yeah. right so it's like but you think okay this she's we're with her we're entering this world right like she's on this mission she's the fish out of water and then you realize that you have a completely unreliable narrator you know who's showing you this world that you're like and that. Even when she's saying, at first I thought, I was like, I thought she's going to, another film would say, her realizing, oh my God, this is horrible. This film shouldn't be made. Also, this kid has been horribly abused. I'm going to save him. There's moments where you think that's the plot. Absolutely not. Like she fucks him and then reads the letter and like, starts doing her impersonation. Like she's completely as bad as Julianne Moore. Because they're both if not just, worse. They're worse because they're completely using him too. Like the, the line of, this is my life. This is not a story. You know, this is my life. That's just something grown-ups do. Oh, my God, dude. Or where she says, um, what was it about? Where she talks about when he was 13, he was much more experienced than me. I've only <laughs> ever been with my husband. He was very different. He had lots of girls. What the fuck are you talking about? We've also sort of undersold how uncomfortable this movie gets. It's brutal. It's absolutely, but but really definitely handled by Todd Haynes. I mean, an, again, an, an incredible movie. The theme of this, this episode, a lot of filmmakers making films that really shouldn't work. And also has one of the great endings of oh. 2023 when, when it, it kind of does the body double ending. I won't say any more than that, it's, but it's 
tremendous. Yes. What's your number four? My number four is uh, Boy and the Heron, the new Miyazaki film. Um, I am an enormous Miyazaki fan. And I know between the two of us, you're not as big of an animation guy. Um, at, at all. At, at all. Um, Mi- but I have seen this. Yes. And it is quite good. Mi- Miyazaki for me is like Del Toro that I think no one captures like the whimsy of being a child and the sure. the wonder, um, but also the terror as well. Like he, he doesn't shy away from, um, from how wonderful it can be to be young and to be, you know, wide eyed, but also to be, um, terrified, terrified of just, of just in, in a lot of these films, um, like I me, mean, Del Toro, a lot of his best films take place, you know, during wartime and you have children trying to protect their innocence while again, the world's burning around them. Right. And then you have, Miyazaki, a lot of his films are very similar, you know, these of like, how do you protect your innocence and hold on to goodness when the world's on fire? Um, but I thought this film, because he, um, his last film was supposed to be the wind rises. Like that was like, I'm done. Um, yeah, it was the period to the end of that sentence. Yeah. And that film did feel like a very much, um, an ending. And a lot of his films have to do with flight. They've written, you know, books, millions of books upon this. Um, and, but this one, I thought, again, we have another filmmaker reckoning with his own career, reckoning with his own death, Fableman's Crimes of the Future, like last year, Armageddon Time, three movies we talked about, of these films of Ferrari, Ferrari, yeah, of people reckoning with, of, with legacy too, um, and Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, well, a lot, yeah, yeah, exactly, which we'll talk about in a bit as well, but this film too, like, I, um, I went and saw it on IMAX, thankfully, over at Bob Bullock. Oh, and wow. I, and I just, um, I was I was dangerously hungover, but it was my friend Will. Um, and the opening scene, he's running through, I believe it's the firebombing of, of Tokyo. Or, sorry, not, not firebombing of Tokyo, but it's, um, there's the fire of the hospital um, right. where his mom is. And I've seen just the animation style. I've never seen anything quite like it. There's a waviness that, that Mizaki brings in that is just so effective. Um, and then just the images of bad for your hangover though. I bet. It made me feel a little queasy. All I had was like popcorn and a fucking root beer. Um, but the, the, the scenes for me that are just like, you talked about scenes that are burned into your brain. Like for me, it's this image of the old man who's Miyazaki, this guy who's created this fantasy world or lives in this fantasy world. Um, after going through similar like Pan's Labyrinth in through this kind of like hole in the ground, you go down into this fantasy land and he's basically sitting at a desk and behind him is this giant meteor. And this meteor is basically pure creation. And for me, that shit is like Lovecraftian. It's cosmic. And I just, I see on the screen like Miyazaki and reckoning with the kind of horrors of creativity, like the, the, the toll that creativity takes on you. Um, and also, it's just like a just a beautiful film. Like you can ignore all of that. And as a, as a storyteller and filmmaker, he will go down in history as I mean, one of the greatest storytellers uh, of all time. So, I know you you saw it, you enjoyed it, but yeah, I'm just you know, I like it. I I mean, I've seen most, of, if not all, of the Studio Ghibli movies, um, and I like them. But I like them in that I watch them once, yeah. and I don't really go back. Like. Spirited Away is great. Um, Kiki's Delivery Service is great. 
My Neighbor Totoro, I really like. Like, they're good movies. They're just not my thing. Yeah. No, I get it. And his stuff just really speaks to me, you know? Um, And especially, like, the early kind of adventure stuff, like Nausicaa or, like, um, Castle, you know, Castle in the Sky. Howl's Moving Castle. I like I like that one, but I like the early more less mystical and more just straight up adventure like Tintin esque, where it's just like pirates or Porco Rosso, mm-hmm. just like pirates and pilots and and much more just like Indiana Jonesy kind of vibe. My number three is how to blow up a pipeline. The as I've lovingly referred to it since seeing it again on screener when when I first got it is uh, Dirtbag Left Sorcerer is that it's one of the great process movies I've seen in some time, and it literally is about not only how to blow up a pipeline as the, or like pull off a terrorist act as the uh, title would indicate, but it's, it's about how groups come together in the modern age and how people are recruited, people find each other through the internet, they band over common beliefs, causes, and needs, wants, desires, etc. And then how that can alchemate into either something positive or how it can be destructive. In this case, I think the movie advocates that it's both. And it's literally about a bunch of people who come together to take it to an oil pipeline that has in one way or another poisoned their lives or taken something away from their life. And it is so granular in the details about how not only these kids find each other on the internet, but also how... It might be the best movie that represents doom scrolling and how we live in a constant state of heightened paranoia and anxiety and how all of our worst fears are kind of always at our fingertips. And again, we can either be crushed by that or you can be motivated by that to do something. Now, that being said, Whether or not you agree with this movie's politics, and I do not, I do not think that anything should advocate for violence or destruction of property or committing crimes, like, beyond, like, the hypothetical. This movie very much does, it is almost activism as filmmaking, you know, or filmmaking as activism, I guess, would be the more proper way to say it, and... I have friends, very close friends, who do not like this movie because they're like, I just, I can't, I can't get behind something whose message is it's okay to do terrorism if you think it's justified. Like, we live in a time where we have literal presidential candidates calling for violence if they lose. We we're one of the most, in one of the most divided points in not only our our country's history but also like the world's history with all the wars that are constantly taking place anymore that i could understand why people would be put off by that this movie the thing is if you let all of that fucking go and just watch it as a straight thriller this is like one of the great 
impersonations of William Friedkin that I've ever seen because it's a ticking clock and a ticking bomb where I was on the edge of my seat the entire time thinking these kids are going to fucking buy it at any moment or they're going to go to jail or they're going to get killed or anything was going to happen to them or their families were going to get wiped out. And like the way that it tells you the backstory of each one of the participants is just ingenious and again feels like the flashbacks and sorcerer. And it just, it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and it ends on a note that is both triumphant and horrifying. And I just, I love it to death. I've seen it like five times and every time I watch it, I have like sweaty palms the entire time. (laughs) It's so fucking good. No, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I remember you telling me, you're like, it's like Sorcerer and Sorcerer is one of my all time favorite movies. Um, Love the, love the building of the bomb and just the details, the detail of, of, I think a lot of things that, the other movies gloss over is like, it's really, really difficult to do that, you know, like, and to get the materials to do that. It's not like, Oh, just go buy fertilizer and put a fuse in it. Like it really shows like the, like almost like a trial and error, the trial and error. That's what I mean when it gets into the granular process of like how this actually comes to be. And it does have like an entire cast made up of great faces and out of all of them, Forrest Goodluck, the guy who is essentially the the key motivator and the kid who is driven the most towards the bomb maker the entire yeah. time. He is the bomb maker. Dude, the moment where he accidentally like detonates himself is one of the most harrowing things I've seen put to screen in the longest time. This movie just it has sequences that are so expertly put together. That you can't believe this is a second movie because Daniel Goldhaber, uh, the individual who made this, who I believe is non-binary, um, so I'm going to stick with individual here, they made Cam. I don't know if you saw oh, the, the movie about no the Cam shit. girl. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and her kind of reality completely deconstructing around her. This is only his se- their second movie, and like Cam is good. This is fucking next level shit and their next project he's they're making a faces of death film. What is that going to look like? I can't wait because <laughs> I think if anyone can bring faces of death a very antiquated both concept because it's very much a mondo movie stuck in like either faked or found footage of like horrible tragedies, you know, cobbled together through analog technology. If anybody can bring the analog feel of faces to death into the modern digital age, it's this filmmaker. And I can't wait to see what they do with it next. Hell yeah. What's your number three? Well, speaking of great filmmakers, uh, killers, of the flower moon, um, our buddy, Marty, um, a lot of debate over this movie's length. <laughs> well, so I went also IMAX for this, and I'm glad I did. I went alone on like a Saturday morning uh, when it first came out. And it, we've talked before, like between you and me, like um, you're a bigger Scorsese fan than I am. Like I like him. I respect him as a filmmaker, but his stuff doesn't always speak to me. Um, I have no doubt of his talent. This was a film where it's a rare experience for me where I'm completely 
my intellect goes away and I'm completely experiencing a movie, like where you are completely enveloped um, in a world. I think you and I, when you when you watch films as much as we do, and you like are constantly criticizing or or analyzing, it's kind of hard to that to happen sometimes, right? This was I looked down on my watch an hour and a half had passed. So when people talk about length, it's completely fucking relative to me. This film completely pulled me along. This movie's also shorter than The Irishman. Well, and and The Irishman also flows insanely well. You know. Um, so here's my thing. It's one of my great confessions on this podcast. I like Killers of the Flower Moon, but I struggled with it. No, I struggled yeah. with the length. We've talked about this yeah. off mic. Um, I actually felt the length where I went in, I think with even higher expectations than you did, thinking I was going to love it because I'm such a fan. I think I did myself a disservice because I watched The Irishman the weekend before, and that movie just still despite it being almost four hours long just completely hums for me and it's funny and it's violent and it's tragic and it becomes a funeral march by the end but i love all of it and it delivers but the the difference between the irishman and killers of the flower moon is that it delivers that like that punch that that spark, that entertainment that the best of Scorsese's movies do. It, it's where this, The Irishman is more like Goodfellas, Killers of the Flower Moon. moon. Like maybe in the silence. <laughs> yeah, Killers of the Flower Moon is closer to silence or Raging Bull or like these movies that are just about these tragic, awful human beings and, and things that occur to them where they're just stuck and you know nothing good is going to occur and you're kind of just marching towards the inevitable the entire time. And as much as I, like, there's stuff in Killers of the Flower Moon that I really, really like, but I just, I struggled with it and was never entertained by it. It felt like homework to me. And I hope to return to it and change my mind, but this was my biggest, I don't know, disappointment maybe of that's, the year that's interesting i mean again it's it, it to bring it back to your point i mean it's, it is about expectation i imagine right is you're you're going in like oh my god it's the master this is the guy i love and for me i'm like okay just like i hope i like this you know and so i really kind of turned off tried to turn off my criticism um for me i think what really i was fascinated by was and i'm not a huge leo fan same in the same way I think he's talented, but how dare you? I know. Um, but I really liked him in this because um, I like the idea similar. We're talking about with May, December of how people can be so sometimes unaware um, of themselves. Um, I think that he in particular, Leo is usually playing um, smart guys. I mean, you think about him in Wolf of Wall Street, smartest guy in the room. This is true. He's it, a dimwit. He's a, he's a dimwit. And, and he becomes a tool of, of evil. But the, the thing that I text my buddy's a therapist and he saw it the day before I did. And he's a huge Scorsese fan. And he texted me and he goes, Oh my God, killers, the flower moon. I said, I'm going in the morning. I'll text you after. And we texted for a while after and we kind of were getting on that subject of there's the banality of evil, but there's also the inability for people to kind of see themselves sometimes. And I think that I find the moment 
that just made this film sing for me, where it all kind of came together, was the final confrontation between Lily Gladstone and Leo, where she says, what did you put in my medicine? What did you put in my oh, medicine? Oh, man, that scene is heartbreaking. Because what Scorsese does really interestingly is he has these echo scenes. The first time that she invites him inside, they have another one in a very, shot in a very similar way, the two of them at a table, and then the third scene. It's like this, this like repeated scene, and you see the relationship, the love falling together, them at kind of the height, and now everything falling apart. Um, and I think Leo one of his better performances I've seen is just that scene of him, you know, just kind of, he can't, he can't get the words out of having to admit. And cause I think in his mind, he honestly thinks my uncle's evil. They're evil. I did this thing. I'm not evil. You know what I mean? I'm not a bad guy. And for the kind of finally to be revealed and for her to see it, for him to hopefully see it, it's like, Oh shit, I was trying to kill my wife. You know, um, I think De Niro is phenomenal in this too. I think that, Talk about another guy like Gracie in May December, who's a who's a consummate liar, right? Who's the the group the community sees in a certain way. So here's the other issue that I had with Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's I think it's more of a me problem than it is a problem with the actual movie. So I'll admit that up front is that from the moment. De Niro shows up on screen. I was like, oh, it's the devil. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, you know that he's evil and you're watching him constantly manipulate this community. And I don't think Scorsese ever tries to hide it. And I wish he did. Like, I wish William Hale, the king, was more like we gradually reveal that he's this yeah. puppet master as opposed to like when he first shows up, he's like, you like women? Y'all you know, was like, motherfucker, like this guy is bad. <laughs> like, well, it's a, and we know about the behind the scenes stuff of the original script that Eric Roth and, and Scorsese worked on was from Jesse Plemons characters perspective, the FBI mystery coming in. And so, Leo was going to play that Le- role. Leo was playing him. And coming in at the beginning of the FBI, this was like the first, you know, or just the Bureau investigation. Um, and who's going to come in and it be this outsider's look. And I believe it was Leo as the producer said, we can't do that. Like yeah, he, they, they, he wanted to change the entire focus. We to have to do the, the Osage and the, and the Osage and the Osage. And I think it was the right call, but it's an interesting way to structure a movie like this, a murder mystery where we as the audience know who it is from the beginning. Yeah. Like, it's like they don't hide it from us. And so it's more about, it becomes more of a classic Scorsese crime movie where we're not the policemen looking in. We're inside of this, you know. The underworld. The underworld and these enterprises. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, um, Leo's character is very similar to Ray Liotta and, and Goodfellas of this guy who's, you know, constantly kind of leveling up, but also afraid. And then at the end has to betray you know, to save his own skin. But that, that's why I understand what you're saying. But I think like, because it's not a mystery, it works okay for us. Cause it's like, and anyone going in, like, obviously he's the bad guy, you know, but I do understand. It's like maybe show if he was more charming and we would understand why the rest of the, the kind of community was fooled by that. Cause it's like, dude, you're fucking, like you said, you're Satan. Well, cause the other thing too, that loses me somewhat is when, 
he takes Leo into the Masonic Lodge <laughs> and they like spank him and stuff. Yeah. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like, it's not even like the difference between this and like Goodfellas or Casino, like my some of my favorite Scorsese movies and even like Wolf of Wall Street, frankly, there's no seduction. Like you never, mm. I never frankly understand besides him being a simpleton, why he would buy into this world because it's just, there's nothing sexy about it. There's nothing that's like, come with us, come to the dark side and, and, and taste the pleasures of it. It's just kind of like, you know, the entire time. And I think to a certain degree, and that's the big question of the movie is how much does Leo's character know versus being unself-aware and yada yada is that there are times where I think he knows what he's doing is very bad and he consistently lies to himself too to try and suppress it to the point to where he actually believes the lie. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's tough. I, but I do, I can't wait to go back because I, I do wonder how much my opinion on this movie is going to change over time. I just need a little space and distance from it to just go back and then be like, oh, you know what? Maybe you were wrong. Yeah, I saw it twice in one week. I saw Oppenheimer three times in one week. I'm like, these long movies. Like, See, Oppenheimer fuck? is the one where I've gone back multiple times. I've watched that movie six times now. And it's just every time it sings. But that I like that movie a lot. Because, again, it feels a lot like Sorkin to me, particularly the social network. Yeah. And how you're just jumping between... Like, I've seen a lot of people... Not a lot of people, but some people complain about the last hour of that movie and how it just takes place during hearings and stuff. And I'm like, that shit is totally thrilling to me because it's just cross cuts between all of this interrogation. And I, like, live for that shit. Yeah. My number two is I believe the only movie... On both of our lists that only one of us has seen. And I feel sad about that because I think you're really, really going to love this movie. It's All of Us Strangers. Andrew Haig's uh, latest one um, starring Paul Mescal and and Andrew Scott. It's Do you know what the movie's about? Yeah. Okay. So for the audience, it's about two men who live in this new apartment high rise. They're the only residents there. Andrew Scott plays a morose, depressed loner who's trying to write a screenplay about his dead parents. And Paul Mescal plays kind of a wandering soul who just comes in and basically hits on Andrew Scott one day. And they strike up a romance all while Andrew Scott deals with, we're going to talk about a year of like repressed familial trauma It's about how he returns to his hometown and to his childhood home and reconnects with the parents who died when he was 13 in a car wreck and how he imagines these conversations and hangs out with them. And they're played by Jamie Bell and Claire Foy in their 30s. And it's just like the movie has not. There's one movie that made me just as sad and it's my number one movie. But a movie hasn't gotten into like my the core of my emotions like this one has 
sense like call me by your name and like and also this is the movie that kind of renders the sequel to call me by your name kind of irrelevant mm-hmm. like i know luca has talked about it for ever since you know that movie became kind of an art house hit and garnered all those academy award nominations is that this kind of feels like the sequel to call me by your name it's almost if like elio if we picked up with him in his 30s and he was a depressed guy and his parents were dead now and he was trying to basically revisit them in his mind and talk about all the secrets and stuff that he never came about because like some of this stuff is like Andrew Scott imagining what it would be like to talk to his parents about being gay, you know, for the mm. first time and how then there is a scene in that to where he he reveals to them like hey i'm a gay man like and and how they react to it and it's both incredibly warm and also like heartbreaking at the same time and all the the relationship that forms between him and paul mascal because of the movie captures what it's like to be an adult and experience like true loneliness for the first time. And it, it's really, really magical stuff. And then for all of its intimacy and all of its chamber drama elements, uh, it's shot in this very ethereal dreamlike way that makes it incredibly cinematic. And it ends on my favorite shot of any movie of the entire year, which is, I held it together with this and my number one movie for as sad as they are and everything. I held it together and I held it together and I didn't cry and I choked some stuff back even in a lot of the very painful kind of confrontational stuff between him and his parents. But it ends on a note that just completely demolished me both on like an emotional level and then also just on an artistic level because the shot that's pulled off at the end becomes downright literally cosmic and it's it's all scored to because it's also all of the uh it's all like music it's all it's all it's all like pet shop boys and to like pet shop boys and and uses uh frankie goes to hollywood but not relax it uses the power of love. Okay. And according to Andrew Scott, all of the cues were actually written into Andrew Haig's original script. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. It's either Haig or High. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was written into his original script and it ends on the power of love. And it's just like a complete wrecking ball. And I, I can't believe that a movie like this exists and is still at 41 years old, like is able to get into like, not just like my heart, but like my stomach the way this one did, because it's, it's just a tremendous movie. And also like, frankly, Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott have so much chemistry and you feel such a, a tenderness and a warmth between them. And like you feel in the same way that you felt with Timothy Chalamet and army hammer army hammer like that intimacy felt real between them and call me by your name like this feels real but just between two men in their late 30s and early 40s that rediscover them each other at a point when they're both incredibly lonely and, and they unlock something in each other that's 
really, really special. And like this movie, I can't sing its praises enough. And also like, if you get a chance, see it on the big screen. I know it's going to start streaming soon. And a lot of people are going to discover this at home, but if you can see it, see it on the big screen. It's one of the most beautiful films of 2023 in terms of just pure visuals. And it's, it's a tremendous work, really, really special stuff. Hell yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to see it. Yeah, I can't wait to to get your opinion on it. I think you're gonna love it. I, I I've had tickets many times, but just like just life's been fucking busy, and I'm excited. But I know like the soundtrack alone is what attracts me. Because I love like all of that British that Brit pop of the '80s. So like yeah, that kind of like dark wave stuff. Yeah, so. and like Pet Shop Boys, you are always on my mind. Plays a huge role in it, and it's just it's really you're really gonna like it. Hell also, yeah. like I haven't even hit upon like how good Jamie Bell, Bell and Claire Foy are as his parents. They just, it, man, it's, it's a real feat of acting. Like Sorry. they, they, they really tapped into something special with this movie. Well, speaking of feats of acting, my number two is Ferrari. And you mentioned, obviously earlier we talked, Enzo! and we talked about Adam driver, but I want to talk about Penelope Cruz. Yeah. And, when I saw that we've, we've, I've seen this now three times. We watched early screeners of it. And then I went to the theater with my parents day after Christmas. So glad I got to see it in the big screen. I'm not sure. Did you get to go to the big screen yet? I did. It's, uh, it's absolutely it, amazing. It's amazing. I've seen it four times. It's, it's so fucking good. And for me, man has always had really interesting female characters because sometimes he needs them to just be elemental. Like he, there's not space for them to be, super three-dimensional they represent home life they represent he does fall into a lot of like they're either love interests or wives and like they don't but they do represent like a support system for his very macho male characters exactly And, and they represent like it's the 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 two worlds either choose your work or you choose home, right? It's the fight between love and, right. and, and love and, and work and always wins when work. All, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but, but also a man in the past has written characters. Like I think specifically about Gong Lee and, and Miami vice who yeah. are these powerful business women. Right. And so his later films have more characters like that. And I think specifically Penelope Cruz is like the, kind of the best character he's written and the best character he's directed as a female. Because we've said before, they're very male movies. And what's so great about her in this is that she does so much silent acting. There's a scene, the first, they, they um, very early on, both of them go separately. They're basically estranged. Like they they own the business together. They're one step away from a divorce all the fucking time. And it they, doesn't help that Enzo has a second family. Yes, that she does not know about. Um, she knows that he's she knows that he sleeps around, but not that he has an actual son who could claim the Ferrari name. Oh, it said it's okay if you sleep around. Just be home before the coffee is served. Yeah, which is, it, but there's the scene where she goes to the the gravesite of their son who just recently died. Dino. Dino, and. It's like, I think, a 30-second shot just on her face. And she goes through, like, six emotions. Yeah, it's incredible. It, you And you you can see what each one is communicating. It's like this amazing storytelling. And you, you mentioned earlier that, that man is so good, um, especially with his male characters, of these, these monoliths, right? These men standing. You think of the shots of... Um, 
of him standing by watching the cars during the test the test races. I think that's very similar to one of the greatest shots of of man's career, which is you know De Niro and Heat by the by the window, you know, in his in his you know um, empty apartment. And but Penelope just I think is the lifeblood of this is the lifeblood of this movie because it's their arguments, it's their fight. Like the kind of climax is what that you realize that she's the best partner he could ask for, right? That she is, she basically saves the company. You think that she's this antagonist in a way who's, you know, for a moment you think at least for him, she's going to fuck shit up because if she cashes this check, the company's going under, but you realize why, you know, why she does it. So I just think it's, you know, we talked a lot at the beginning of the episode, but we don't have to go too deep on this film. It's Michael Mann. It's all the things we love about Michael Mann. It's also his passion project he's want to do for like, what, 30 years? That was going to be my question to you. Is this Michael Mann's most personal movie? I would say. I think so. It feels like the only one that he's ever made that actually reckons with his own legacy body of work. And frankly, off-screen persona as this driven, very tough to work with and hard on his collaborators kind of not despotic creator but like he's he's he is a a general like he leads you into battle and you either father him and follow him do it his way or you're not part of the company I, I demand perfection and nothing less you know right. and again the scene you mentioned earlier one of the best scenes is him telling you know two two cars can two items cannot occupy the two same space cannot op- occupy the same space at the same time and so it's like you know you have to say, I'm willing to die when you hit that corner and you're either going to cut behind or in front of your, you know, because other one guy says, fuck it. We'll both die. And you ask yourself, am I a sportsman or am I a competitor? competitor? And the, I taking my parents, there's, you know, spoiler alert. Uh, but the scene that when you and I both, I did not know about the car wreck and it, the kind of the climax is this, it all leads to this horrible wreck where the main, the main kind of, uh, in a way, maybe like the young version of if Enzo had been a driver, this guy he kind of sees himself in, and you this purely wonderful man moment that precedes it of uh, man's favorite achieving bliss. May, well, man's favorite theme of becoming right, like becoming is this theme since Manhunter, you know of of leveling up, of becoming uh, almost uh, becoming perfect, finding your true meaning, you know, trying your, your true passion, your purpose. Your purpose. Yeah. And, and he's the moment where this character is, he finds the groove and you see like the, the, what they do this almost like retrograde zoom with front of the can in front of the, the car and it, everything kind of compresses. You're like, why wow, he's going to win. And he, does not. He is not. He hits this uh, this sharp uh, like bump, basically a sharp uh, like, like a light in the middle of the road that cuts his thing. He flies, but he kills like fifteen people, um, and it's absolutely horrific to look at. Like because they come back to the scene, there's, there's literally people split in half. Like there's intestines. This is also what ended that race. Yeah, there was never another one of those races in the history. The melee, of yeah, melee, melee, and it was it was. You have again to your point about a, a kind of creator reckoning. It's that like what what was it all for? What yeah, like, I mean, not too far again from May December, right? Is this it, not her not reckoning with that, but us seeing like 
oh my god because it's it's just a race in the end like you see that too of like you're like it's really cool to hear enzo say like you know if italy wants a scapegoat here i am <laughs> well but when but when the point that he makes is he says you know it's a dangerous sport but for the drivers it shouldn't be the people it shouldn't be children he's he makes that point to someone he says no, no, it's a dangerous sport, but they shouldn't be collateral damage. You know, like yeah. he, he it was nev- never anything he actually considered before. He had never imagined that. He knew that you could die. He had lost friends in races. He's he'd seen it, but I think it was the first time he actually kind of got caught. He watched a man die in the test run. Yeah. And then just then called the next guy. He's like, Come to my office. Call me on Monday. Yeah. Um I just it's Man's a fucking what a master. Dick too. Yeah, it's well, and again, a classic man character of you know. He says Enzo. I have the soundtrack on my phone. It's like one of the one of the song titles is "Build a Wall," right? I say Enzo, build a wall, and it's this idea of like you can't get too close. Um, again, when you feel the heat around the corner, it's yeah. it's all there. No emotional attachments. No specific attachments. You know, it's all the man stuff. And the, it's the catnip. Tropes. Yeah, it's catnip for me, and I know for you too. So. Yeah, this is a great movie. I mean, if we didn't have to put together like top fives that didn't overlap with one another, which was one of the rules, this would probably be top five for me for real. Like, it's just it's fucking awesome. Yeah, number one, Iron Claw. Ooh, baby. Like, I saw this, I think, four times before you got to see it once. I watched this movie four times in a week. Like, I got that screener from A24. Kind of like Babylon last year. I just couldn't stop watching it. Um, But this represents to me, to take it back to one of the things we were talking about in the introduction before we got into the actual lists. This, to me, is the first movie in A24's kind of, whether they intended it or not, in their business plan to kind of make movies that are more accessible to, like, a mainstream audience. Because at its core, yes, this is a very sad, tragic movie about real-life pro wrestlers who were befallen by just the worst things that could happen to a family and watching a group of brothers who very much love each other die one after another, often by their own hand. Like, as Sean Durkin has said in interviews, because he came under fire because he's changed some of the facts and even omitted one of the brothers completely. Who also killed himself. Also killed himself. Yep. Um, his response was, if I included all of it, they wouldn't believe it was real. Yeah. And it's true, like, because you can actually go watch. There's a, a Dark Side of the Ring episode. I just watched episode it that night last, after I watched the movie. Yeah, Mistake. me too. I watched it right <laughs> after. Last of the Von Erichs. It's incredible because real. it actually interviews the real Kevin Von Erich, who's played terrifically by uh, Zach Efron in the movie. But it he very openly comments on how their lives went and how he watched all of these people that he loved just die one after another. And when you watch him tell it, you're like, what the fuck? Like, there's no way this all happened to one person. And, but it did. And so like, I totally understand Durkin's sentiment that if he presented it in a way that real life occurred, people would be like, dude, this is too much. Like he's straight up said, like nobody would make this movie. If I put all of the facts in there, nobody would have financed it because it had just been too fucking sad. So what he does instead is that he, you know, 
combines some details mm-hmm. of some of the brothers. He compresses the the timelines. The, the injury to the death, or the the um, the winning of the of the belt to the losing of the leg for Carrie happened yeah. like three years later, but it happens the same night. Like, yeah. You it's know. like it, it, he compresses it so that we get the general idea. He also leaves some of the stuff about Carrie's actual eventual ascension to the WWF as the Texas tornado. Like Carrie got a full contract and never told them that he didn't have a fucking leg missing. Yeah. Like it's just, it's insane. But anyway, back to the actual movie, like you watch it, but beyond all that, this is like an incredible sports film. Yeah. Like it's just, it's a rise and fall movie where when the fall happens, it's just devastating. But Durkin makes you feel the love between these brothers, particularly like Zach Efron's incredible. Um, Harris Dickinson's completely unrecognizable. Oh my God. Then sad boy Supreme, Jeremy Allen White, who I'm actually worried about. I'm like, could you just do a rom-com? Could we get you in a Fairly Brothers movie? Do something where I don't think you're on the verge of suicide all the time. He's great in it as Carrie. And then I think the true stroke of genius for this movie is take all the brother stuff out of it, which which works like gangbusters. Fucking Holt McCallany. Oh, dude. As Fritz, who they leave a shitload of stuff about Fritz out. And I think for the better, because if they didn't, I think it would be impossible, much like how the audience would not be able to swallow all of the tragedy about the Von Erics in a single, you know, yeah. melodramatic narrative that he kind of constructs. They wouldn't be able to sympathize or empathize with Fritz von Erich. He was if, horrible. Well, he was horrible, but he played a Nazi. Yeah. Like, that was his character in the ring, is that he was, or was it like a Nazi sympathizer? No, it was, like, a, it was a Nazi. Was an actual was Nazi? A Nazi, yep. But instead, what he opts to do with Fritz von Erich is make him a three dimensional human being who pushes his kids too hard, still loves his wife, but keeps her relegated to the sidelines is a great businessman, but also, like, there's great moments. Like, the whole wedding sequence when he is just sitting there with Maura Tierney, who is basically, like, the Rose Kennedy of pro wrestling in yeah. this. Like, where they decide, like, hey, let's sneak away and go back to the hotel and have a little bit of love together. We don't actually don't have any of our boys in the house anymore. Like, he still takes the time to make him a human being who's capable of love, who isn't just a pure villain and and wants the best for his family, but probably pushes them a little too hard. Like, I think... And Holt McCallany is awesome in this movie. I mean, the whole thing across the board is just a slam dunk of a motion picture. And then what it does, kind of like all of us strangers, is that because it condenses the timeline, because I've seen some people lodge a complaint about the movie and say, well, it almost speeds things up to the point to where like we don't actually get to experience the emotional impact of each individual event as it happens to the brothers. And I think that's actually on purpose. Like it he keeps pushing you past every tragedy so that you don't have time to, 
to completely grieve until the last 15 minutes, which you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast should not work. This ends on two fucking scenes that on paper you would be like, "Mm, I don't know, man. And I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. But one of the last lines will be your brother's dad becomes like one of the most like it's ultimate dude weepy bullshit that just wrecks you because like in those last 15 minutes, he finally slows down enough to allow you to process what has occurred to these guys who have spent their entire lives devoted to one another and a sport that their dad has made them lionize. Like it finally lets you reckon with that for 15 minutes. And when it, it hits, it hits like a fucking atom bomb. Like this movie is incredible. It it would, I mean, it's, I saw it last week and it immediately was like, well, this is one, this is probably top three, you know, the year. Yeah. And I like wrestling a lot. I've been watching dark side of the ring and, you know, I think what this film does, I mean, again, I, I lost it at the end. I mean, that line and, and you God. and I both have good relationships with our, with our brothers respectively, you know, and if you love your dad or not, we all have complex relationships with our dads. You know, there's just the idea of like what has been passed down to me, what are things that I want to leave behind if I ever have kids that I want to pass down. Again, it's about familial trauma, right? you know, and or just familial like legacy. But, you know, that, that line of, also, what a dad is versus what a brother is. It's just nothing quite like a brother, you know? I mean, again, May, December, that weird thing of, like, Charles Melton's more like a brother to those guys, those, those kids. You know, it's the yeah. way who we are to people and family and, and our connections to one another um, and how we support each other. But I think this film, one of the reasons I loved it so much, and beyond the wrestling comparison, it does thematically and lands what Foxcatcher wanted to do. Which is oh whoa be easy no no, no. I like Foxcatcher I like I like Foxcatcher but I don't think it sticks the landing about about this is about American exceptionalism gone wrong Iron Claw is that I mean it is this like American dream from the beginning they, it's mythic in proportions of of Holt of Fritz saying you know if we fight hard enough we can do anything like we can pull ourselves out of the situation because no one else is going to do it for us. We're going to bootstrap it. Right. But to live in that mentality for your entire life, people are going to get hurt. And I think the thing that I found really fascinating was the continue. I'm not sure where this came from. Maybe obviously the truth was both the mom and Fritz, whenever they came to them and said, this is a problem that's for you and your brothers to work on. They never take responsibility they, they say, okay, you're going to do things for us and make us rich or you're going to, you know, follow the family business. But, like, I'm worried about my brother. Look out for him. The dad didn't. And he fucking killed himself, you know? And so um, I think, it, and again, it's very new Hollywood. It felt like a true American family epic. Like, when, he, when after um, David dies and he's, and Zach is mourning him, when uh, Kevin is mourning him, he's in bed and his wife comes in to comfort him, on the bookshelf behind him is the fucking Godfather. Now, I know it's the 70s and it's supposed to be like, this is a period, like, just good production design. For me, I'm like, okay, this is a fucking Coppola movie. Like, it's not yeah. accidental. It's, it's, fucking Kevin is in a weird, he's, he's got more, he's got moments of, um, 
he's got moments of like Corleone, Michael Corleone in there. And there's the scene where Carrie comes back, the great returning hero, right? And he's high on Coke and he gives the gun to his dad, which will ultimately be the gun that he kills himself with. And you see the way that, um, you see the way that, that, uh, Durkin shoots Kevin. And it's very similar to the scene in Godfather part two, where they're all at dinner waiting for dad to return and they all leave him alone. It's this guy who's almost like weirdly alone in his own family, you know, that he's almost realizing I'm the only sane person here right now, or I don't belong. Like I'm not of this family. It's moved past me to yeah, a certain degree. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is just a, a great, work of art and i can't wait to see what durkin does next big because between this and his dead ringer series they did for amazon like he's just really leveling up and i've liked everything that he's done martha marcy may marlene's great the nest is great like do you watch Southcliff? no i've never watched holy it. fuck dude it is a masterpiece it really? is if you think iron claw is brutal about like just family shit and like trauma Southcliff's like 10 times as, and it's okay. also a true story. Okay. I believe and about a shooting and it's, Oh dear Lord. It I'll is it it's re- four episodes of just bludgeoning you with trauma, but it's fantastic. Who put that out? Um, it was BBC, I believe. And Sean okay. and Sean Harris though is the lead. Oh wow. As this like, as like a mass shooter. Okay. It's we'll n- have to do it. enough said. Yeah. So what's your number one? Godzilla minus one. Wow. Yeah. Um, this I saw this in the theater, and uh, between the two of us, like you're you're a bigger kaiju fan. We've talked about this before. Um, I don't dislike kaiju; it's just not not been a huge part of my like film going experience. Well, it's worth noting this is different than pretty much any kaiju movie ever made. Exactly, so, and that's kind of the point for me. So if I you're s- go back and watch this, and then be like, you know what? I'm gonna check out Destroy All Monsters next. You'd be like, hmm, these are different. Yeah, it's. I went alone the first night first time and I'd heard it was very, very good. And I, and I, the shot I saw in the trailer was the jaws shot. And it's, these guys are in um, a mind sweeping boat and there's the, basically Godzilla is falling behind like the shark in jaws, his head just out of the water. And those big googly, eyes. big googly eyes, very expressive too, which is really cool. Um, yeah. I like the design of this. I like Shin Godzilla a lot, but I like the design of Godzilla a lot more in this. Yeah, he has googly eyes in Shin Godzilla, but they're weird. When he also, also Godzilla, they're kind of like the googly eyes from Everything Everywhere All at Once, just on Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, no, and and Shin Godzilla, he's just too craggly for me. I don't know. He just like compared to this one. This one's a little more classic too. Yeah, you know. But this movie, from the first scene, I was like, I am. In well, that first nighttime scene where he attacks on the island is legitimately terrifying. It feels like something out of Jurassic uh, Park. Oh yeah, no, full on Jurassic Park. And what the director like totally got was like he knew how to use Godzilla in different ways. It's not just Godzilla attacking a town after town. He's smaller in that scene, so it is more of a like he's like a force of nature. A, but it, but but in that scene, it's like he's smaller, so he's more um, scary because he can kind of hide in the dark, right? And then the whole water sequence, you got what, 45 minutes of that movie just on the ocean, you yeah. know, and it's just Jaws. Like, it just, it just yeah, he's it, straight up doing Jaws. He does Jaws. And so if you do that, I'm fine. But what the movie is so, I mean, people kept, you know, there's, there's a lot of Godzilla films that do have like some decent, you know, 
human being narratives. This is not many, but not as many. This is the best. I mean, this like, this is talking about like post-war guilt, survivor's guilt, and this idea that he's basically an unexploded bomb. The whole thing is this guy is like, I was supposed to die. I was supposed to die. And everything here is my fault. If I had shot God's own, the first scene, if I had been been a coward, not been a coward in multiple times, I would, you know, and another film that made me cry uncontrollably with a very emotional thing of men connecting and saying, you know, a, a really a kind of a wonderful scene of forgiveness between he and the mechanic, which is like unexpected. Um, but it works on all levels. And to our earlier kind of point about this is a year of films, we kind of films we haven't seen in a while. While blockbusters like Quantumania again flopped and The Flash flopped, here's an IP film. Now, it didn't do insane, but for Godzilla, it's the biggest Godzilla film to ever come to the States from Japan, and then some. It has and been subtitled. It's been kind of like RRR. It has that kind of excitement around it. Um, and I took, I went two more times and took friends, and they were just like, this is, you know. It's a fun, it, it feels like an American style, like 1995 blockbuster. It's a little Roland Emmerich, you know. I'd argue it feels like a Nolan Godzilla, because it feels like Dunkirk. It's Dunkirk, but with Godzilla, because it becomes about how a nation bands together to fight off their own Holocaust, following the atom bomb being dropped and destroying their culture, their way of life, and frankly, their their ability to or potentially their ability to move past the devastation that the bomb that was created in Oppenheimer generates. And like for all of the criticisms of Oppenheimer, including Spike Lee's own thing of saying like, oh man, I wish that we had seen, you know, the Japanese people and their reaction to the devastation that Oppenheimer actually generated with the bomb. This gives you that. Like this is what that, like this plays like, as the perfect companion piece to Oppenheimer, it just happens to have kaiju in it, and it's filmed in a very similar way. Like that end, like set piece where they all band together to fight the common enemy that is Godzilla. It's Dunkirk. It's just Dunkirk with a kaiju. Well, it's cool too because it really. It's so not a nationalist film at all because these guys it reckons with it, the it, nationalism because they say. These guys are saying, I love my country. I don't love my government, right? Like that they say. Our government has abandoned us. They abandoned us. They would not. They gave us shitty weapons to fight the war in the first place. We were not equipped. They made us believe in kamikaze pilots. Yep. Which is probably not the best. Yeah. And yeah. And our main character kind of realizing it's like, no, like you, you shouldn't have died in the first place. That was not about a false honor that they've actually bestowed upon you. Yeah. And it's like, but they say, but we can fight as brothers. We can fight as, 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 as neighbors, which is really moving. I'll be your brother. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, and, and again, like, and talk about very Spielberg-y too. I mean, the relationship between the four guys on the boat, our main character, the doctor, the kid and the captain mm-hmm. is just absolutely wonderful. I mean, like I could watch a whole movie. They're just hanging out. One of the domestic drama, of, oh. of, like the found family that he puts together in the aftermath of the bombs and returning home in shame. Like, it is. It's it's classic melodrama stuff, and it's the first time that anything like this has ever been not only inserted into a Godzilla movie, but honestly worked. It it works. It, like it takes its time. You have the opening, you have the opening fight scene, 
and then it's like shoots like year like a couple years in the future. The war is over. It it really marinates in it for a while. And they just basically hang out and bombed out Tokyo. I mean, they're they're trying to like pick up the pieces, and you see this guy slowly. Like he gets, you see them kind of growing as a family, and like, okay, he gets now they have a nice replace. They put together a new life. Yeah, and and it's them. They have a child that they adopt from the streets, more or less. Well, and that's what the title came from is so cool. The minus one is that I was reading. It's like after the atom bomb, we were at zero. And imagine after that, something else comes. Like you, you have nothing left. You've you've been rebuilt for a year. And all of a sudden, a fucking kaiju comes and wants. It's basically another atom bomb. What do you do? Because you're at minus one now. I just, I think it's a really compelling, really compelling idea, and it's just really well executed. I mean, like some of the best big budget action stuff I've seen all year, like everything versus the Godzilla is absolutely mind blowing. It is up for the Oscar for visual yeah, effects, for best visual effects, yeah, and deservedly so. Absolutely, it looks absolutely amazing. Well, Martin, this has been great. Indeed. I hope we gave people 10 good movies to watch. Hopefully they've seen most of them already if they're listening to this. But if not, this gives them motivation to seek them out. 2023, hell of a year for movies. And now hopefully 2024 gives us more gifts like this last one did. Because we have plenty of secret handshake to record ahead of us. We'll see you soon. All right.